This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when Jesse plays music like that, I know what's coming up. He loves great practical jokes, and so do we here on the show. And he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country. And boy, have we had some doozies in the past. We had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry, who violated L.A.'s airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons. We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel, who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. (laughs) That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on True TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun-loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old-school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse. You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunko artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device, the publicity stunt. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The bull didn't damage anything, however, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living. That advertisement had no effect on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite? No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. You lie down flat, he can't see you. That's the male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him... How do I distract a male ostrich? The stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. 
In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation, described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees. He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of $1,000. $1,000,000. That was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the art association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist-slash-prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. (laughs) One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke, scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Inglewood, New Jersey in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read... His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster, Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes. By the way, don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it. That's cruel. But for people who can, bring it on, baby. That's what we say. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Impractical jokester, hoaxer, Jim Moran story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we bring you conversations with leaders ranging from athletic coaches to entrepreneurs to teachers, military leaders, philanthropists, people from every walk of life. And you can find them all at ouramericanetwork.org and click on On Leadership in the topic section. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this latest edition. Steve Klinsky is the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital. And he's also a father. Literally, I was driving home with my family from a vacation last summer. And one of my sons says, hey, Dad, I learned what you do in school. You guys buy companies and you fire everybody. And I said, wait a second, wait a second. Pull out the iPad, go to the New Mountain website, pull up the social dashboard, read it out loud. And this is what his son read on this so-called social dashboard. New Mountain itself has added or created over 26,000 jobs at the companies we've owned, why we've owned them, net of any job losses. The jobs pay way more than the national average because these are you know, high-margin, high-growth companies that we own. We've spent over $3.5 billion on R&D, software, and capital expenditures. We've never had a bankruptcy. We've never missed an interest payment. I think we've created something like $18 billion for ourselves and our co-investors. And these co-investors are not whom you might think. Many of them are the retirement funds for folks like teachers and police officers and also college endowments, which provide scholarships for those who can't afford the tuition. So when Steve's New Mountain Capital is creating value, that's who they're creating it for. Let alone all those jobs that he mentioned and let alone their company's products themselves that give all of us stuff that we want, like their company of Vantors, high quality ingredients that make up our pharmaceutical drugs that save our lives. Think this story is being told at your kid's school? Or have you heard it in the media? But all of us did hear them tell this story. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking. The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. After Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, you say that the banks, the big banks are still at it, still gambling. Unfortunately, they are. If Wall Street does not end its greed, we will end it for them. Steve Klinsky heard this story too, and it moved him to do something. We started doing a social dashboard right after Lehman Brothers collapsed in 08 because there was so much anger in the country against business, against Wall Street, against private equity, everybody's trying to figure out who to blame, that I just wanted to be on record for ourselves, just what we ourselves do here at New Mountain. And just no one asked us to do this social dashboard. I just asked my team to pull together what I think are very common sense metrics. A lot of people assume that everyone in my field is like Danny DeVito who comes in and some little miserable guy who you know, sells the desk and melts down the phone for plastic or something. I mean, it's just not what, it's just, it's just the stereotype that, that we're always fighting against. The stereotype of having no soul, of making investment bets coldly and without any concern 
for other human beings. Well, in the single greatest bet of Steve's life, he poured out his soul, literally. I was driving home in a cab on a December night in New York. I had just seen a movie that you know made me think about my brother who had passed away. I was kind of in a in a bit of a melancholy mood, and I was coming home, and it was a rainy, misty night in December. And I look out the window, and there's a woman that I think is very beautiful walking up the street crying in the night in December in the mist. And I just told you know, I just kind of got a feeling. I asked the cab driver to stop, and I got out, and I ended up you know kind of been able to get catch up to her, tap her on the shoulder, and uh, we had a very brief conversation, but that led to me meeting my wife, and so it was a kind of a, a, a lucky uh, a, a lucky event. Or you have good intuition. I have good intuition, or it's just a, a good karmic nut. Um, she painted a little more colorfully, telling you to go away. You didn't include that in your answer. Well, like I, I, I it didn't, we didn't get married the first day, so I was more, uh, I was more, uh, you know, I, it, it took a little time to convince her that uh, I was the right guy and all that. Ah, Steve's still holding back on me. His now bride recalled that night to the New York Times like this, quote, he kept saying, doesn't the city look cool tonight? And my first reaction was, get this guy away from me. I remember looking at the walk and don't walk signs flashing and thinking, I am going to lose him on one of these corners. The only thing I told him was my name and where I worked. And finally, I just said, look, I don't want to talk to you. But she clearly changed her mind. And they are still married 22 years later. It's like one of these lucky things where you meet somebody and the odds are a million to one, it's going to be the right person. And then by the second date, it's 500,000 to one. And, by the, you know, and then you just start feeling better and better. So it's, it's not something that's reproducible, but it worked out great. And, um, you know, and, and there it is. Of course, a finance guy talks about love like a finance guy with numbers and odds and all. Ridiculous. <laughs> And in the early years of their marriage, he and his bride would often spend their quality time together trying to help others make sure that their lives weren't left up to chance. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother's name was Gary. And when I was in kindergarten, he was in seventh grade. And I would come home from school and he would give me school after school. He would have reading circles and workbooks and he was a big influence on me and my education. Uh, he passed away from illness when he was 29, when I was still in graduate school. And when I got into my 30s and I had achieved, you know, started to have some success in my career, I wanted to do something in his memory. And I went out and started up after school centers in a neighborhood of New York called East New York, which at the time, this was during the crack wars in the 90s, it was the highest murder part of New York City and the most dangerous. They had more murders in this neighborhood than the state of Nebraska. So it was a really kind of under siege neighborhood and I had the notion, let's go to the most disadvantaged traditional public school in that area and create kind of a clubhouse in the school building after school to extend the day by 50% and do things in a fun way where it feels like thematic play. You know, you're studying the rainforest and you make, turn the room into a, the rainforest with art and you build a terrarium and you map the rainfall, those type of things. So we set that up in 1993 and that's still going today. 
And we're going to bring you more of Steve Klinsky's story after a few messages from our sponsors. And by the way, we love bringing you these stories from the private equity industry, like Steve's, that the rest of the media just isn't telling you. And not because they're in private equity, but because so many of them just have incredible stories and stories that you wouldn't expect. By the way, it's why we do Shark Tank. I mean, in the end, that's private equity, private capital, private money, helping other private people live their dreams. That's what it is. And how the media has turned this into the people with that money are somehow evil. And again, this is why we love Shark Tank. You know, remember, remember the beginning of that show. We learned that all the panelists started with nothing. Barbara Corcoran, who we're going to do an hour on. Her life is so remarkable. I mean, she was a waitress. And she got her husband uh, or had a guy in his li- her life who just told her she wasn't going to amount to anything. She built up a pretty sizable real estate business with him. And then he walks out with some younger girl. And she's like, what am I going to do next? Starts her own company. Now, because of that success from the sale of her company, she's helping other entrepreneurs live their dreams. And that our young people don't know this story, that the American people don't know this story about capital, the human kind and the money kind. Well, it's tragic, and we're going to do something about it here on this show. By the way, we've told a couple of other great stories on leadership as it relates to private equity, go to ouramericannetwork.org. One of our favorites was Madison Dearborn Partners founder John Canning's story of handling the horses at a Jewish summer camp, even though he never interacted with a horse in his life, and even though he wasn't Jewish. And today, by the way, John is one of the biggest supporters of Catholic schools in Chicago, even though he's an atheist. And this is what we love about these stories. And of course, our favorite, Robert Agostinelli's story, And he's the founder of the Roan Group, a big private equity firm. His mom worked three jobs to put him through school. His father served in Korea and took a bullet through his jaw. And Robert worked for free at his father's gas station and then went on with all of his wealth to make the National Memorial Day Parade a reality for our vets. These are the people who so many people in the media just don't like and who we love and we know the American people will love. This is Lee Habib. Steve Klinsky's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's terrific interview with Steve Klinsky for our On Leadership series. And then, in 1999, Steve left the company he used to work for, Forceman Little, to try to start his very own investment firm. And by coincidence, something else happened at this same time. The charter law passed in New York State saying that, that there could be charter schools. And I didn't really start New Mountain and have any money for it until January of 2000. So there was a year when I was thinking about New Mountain, but what I was really doing was working harder than I've ever worked in my life almost on, on charter schools. And I decided to get very involved in the charter movement as an extension of the concept that I had done in after school, that if it worked for three hours a day, wouldn't it be great to have the regular 
school, you know, be able to influence that. So I got very, very involved in that whole movement, ended up organizing the first charter school in the state. And even more charter schools after that. And charter schools are public schools that are empowered with more freedom to innovate than traditional public schools. And this first charter school in New York State history that Steve organized, well, he at first didn't know where he wanted to open one or with whom, but these, you know, minor details have a way of sorting themselves out. Originally, my idea was I wanted to stay out of New York City because, you know, if you fail in New York City, you have more enemies and more bad press coverage and, you know, more ability to be attacked, you know, in New York City than, it's, you know, you figure it'd be easier somewhere outside of the city. So I was going to kind of avoid New York City and find some nice place that really needed a school outside of New York. Uh, I was working with a young minister who became a good friend of mine named Marshall Mitchell, who was a theology student, and we were going around looking at every town in New York trying to figure out where to put the school. And it was frustrating because under the charter law, you get less money per student than any traditional public school, and you also get no building. You don't start with a school building the way a traditional school starts with. So you have to both get a building and a school on less money than they pay without this building. You know, it's really tough situation. And we have been looking at every sort of building, you know, burned out discotheques and auto dealer buildings, trying to find a building to put a school in. Marshall said, hey, I know a great guy with a great building and you should meet him, but it's in New York City in Harlem, which would put us right in the center of any political firestorm. And but I eventually said, well, look, let, let's let's go meet him. It turns out Marshall Mitchell's friend is Wyatt T. Walker. Wyatt T. Walker is one of the true heroes of the civil rights movement. He was Martin Luther King's closest friend and aide in the key years of the civil rights movement. So Wyatt Walker was King's chief of staff. He was the first head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was known as the field general for Project C, which was the Birmingham Civil Rights March, where Bull Connor was turning the dogs and the hoses on all the civil rights marchers. I mean, so Wyatt Walker, for anybody who knows the civil rights movement, is a real, is a true hero. And ever since the 60s, was running a church called the Canaan Baptist Church of Harlem on 116th Street. And he had fought drug dealers, and he had fought for housing and for jobs, and he's just a wonderful guy. Anyways, it turned out that that was the guy that Marshall Mitchell wanted me to meet. And what had happened is the church, through tithes, through people giving 20 cents or 50 cents or a dollar every Sunday for years, had gathered up enough money to build a new building at the back of the church. And it was a community center, but it would also work as a school building. And, you know, Dr. Walker had been fighting every social problem in his area, and he was also wanted to fight for better schools because he had seen that decade after decade, the schools had been failing, traditional schools had been failing in Harlem for his kids and for, you know, all the, the neighborhood. And so he, he was an early supporter of the charter movement. And the idea that I could come in with this application and with the funding and that we could team up and use his building for a charter school was something that he was absolutely enthusiastic about. And I decided he's such a great guy and, you know, the building would work that we would just take whatever political firestorm we would be in and just let's just do it. You know, and it's symbolically the center of a lot of things in, in civil rights. And I view charter school reform and education reform as civil rights. And so did he. 
I was curious how Steve's very first meeting with Wyatt T. Walker went. It reminded me of our story on the unlikely friendship of Stanley Drunken Miller and Jeffrey Canada. Drunken Miller, this wealthy white Republican investor who grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and Canada, this black Democratic education reformer who grew up in the Bronx and their hilarious first impressions of each other. So how was it for these two guys? And I know Jeff Cannon is a wonderful guy as well. Dr. Walker has a reputation of not suffering fools lightly. So where Jeff Cannon is kind of nice to everybody, Dr. Walker is exceptionally respected, but also, you know, had been known to, uh, if he didn't like you, to make clear that he didn't like you easy. So, I mean, even among, you know, I had spent a lot of time in the black churches by that time going around because I was talking with different ministers and stuff. And I was kind of warned, look, this may not go well. I had not spent a lot of time uh, in Harlem, and I'm just, you know, but I just figure everybody's a person and treat everybody the same. So, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. We met in a in a restaurant at the base of a mosque, and Walker's been compared to Sean Connery. He's a very handsome, dignified guy, and uh, but we've become great friends in the years have gone on. Their charter school is called Sicily Walker, and there's a whole book about it that you could pick up. It's titled A Light Shines in Harlem. And a light sure did shine there. The student scores are around double the scores of the traditional public schools that are in the very same neighborhood. Now, Steve mentioned talking with a whole bunch of Christian ministers in New York, and it made me curious. Is Steve of a particular religious faith? I am religious. I'm Jewish, and I'm very influenced by uh, a Jewish theologian who a lot of uh, who a lot of uh, uh, Christian divinity schools like as well. There's a guy named Martin Buber who was a philosopher last century, and he basically made the argument that the purpose of mankind that there's a, essentially a, a drop of divinity in every person and and every aspect of life, and the key is to try to bring that divinity out to hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W, every person and every aspect of life, and that that's the way people should live their life. So, and that everyone's path is different on how to do that. If you oversee one acre of land, you're taking care of that one acre. If you oversee a million acres of land, you're overseeing that million acres and, you know, whatever it is through art or business or everything's a potential path to do that. So I'm very influenced by, by Buber and that idea works my wife is Catholic. My kids are Catholic. I'm, I'm a Catholic church with them every week because I want to be with my family and I view it as the same message and from whatever direction it comes. It's that same message of trying to just do decent things and bring that divinity out into the day-to-day world. So, and, I, and I know Walker believes that. And it's interesting, King quoted Buber in the uh, letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, which Walker actually helped King put together that letter. And by the way, Martin Buber's I and Thou may be as important a book anyone could ever read. It's beautiful. And that's why you hear someone from private equity who's married to a Catholic say, I want to bring out the divinity in every walk of life. Again, you're not used to hearing, quote, money men talk like this, but that's them too. And there are good guys who are rich, and there were bad guys who were poor, and It's just all around. And again, we want to bring out the best in every walk of life here on this show. And you hear it from every walk of life and from every walk of life in this show. And we think beauty is everywhere and that God is everywhere. And for those who don't believe in God, that's fine too. 
We're not excluding anyone here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Steve Klinsky, our On Leadership series. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do on leadership, music, sports, history. More on Steve Klinsky's life after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our final segment, Alex's interview with Steve Klinsky, our On Leadership series continues. In the spirit of his favorite theologian, Martin Buber, Steve thought that there was more divinity that he could hollow out into the world in his so-called free time while he still got his full-time gig at New Mountain. I was at dinner with some friends back in 2012, and someone said, why is college so expensive, you know? And I tried to explain to them that it's a very, very odd situation, because what had just happened in 2012 was that there had been online courses for full pay for many years. I mean, there's been 20 years of people paying full tuition for online education, and about 5 million students a year take online courses. But back in 2012, some of the best schools like Stanford had started to give away online courses for free, and they were getting lots of students, but you couldn't get credit for it. So you had this odd system of expensive courses from maybe unknown schools at a lot of cost or great courses from great professors at no cost, but you couldn't get credit. You know, so you needed to figure out a way to get free courses for credit. And I tried to explain that to people, and then and no one was really working on it. And I said, "Well, you know, I, I'm entrepreneurial. I've started a lot, you know, New Mountain and companies and lots of you know and charter schools. I'll let me start thinking about it." Those free courses from places like Stanford and Harvard that Steve mentioned are called MOOCs, and they don't give out credit for them out of a belief that it would diminish their brand if everyone was able to get credit from Harvard then Harvard wouldn't be seen as an elite brand. It wouldn't be Harvard. So how do you get great instruction for free plus credit? It sounds like an equation that doesn't work. But Steve had an idea, and it came out of his discovery of this little-known thing called the CLEP test, and I had never heard of it. CLEP stands for College Level Examination Program. And like advanced placement or AP exams, passing them can get you credit for college. But unlike AP exams, which you can only take if your high school offers AP courses, anyone can take the CLEP exams and at any time of their life. And thousands of colleges already accept credits from CLEP exams. But... There's not much in the way of CLEP prep courses out there. 
So Steve saw an opportunity, a way to leverage an existing yet underutilized asset. He thought to himself, what if I personally paid teachers to create online club courses so that everyone can take them and I'll offer enough courses that you can get the entirety of freshman year pretty much for free. The only cost is $85 for each CLEP exam. That's less than $1,000 for a full year's worth of credits. How does that sound, parents and students, compared to your 15, 30,000, and 60,000 tuitions out there? And by the way, you can actually get it completely for free right now. Steve is paying for the first 10,000 exam fees and is hoping more donors join him in these sponsorships. Given what I've said, you probably already found their website by now, but if you haven't, it's modernstates.org. Steve's hoping that it'll save students and their families money and also enable folks who couldn't afford college to now be able to. One-fourth of the cost one-fourth of the cost can now be gone for you, vanished into thin air. But I got to admit, when I first heard about what Steve was doing, there was one part of this whole thing that I was pretty skeptical about. Talk about how the education industry has responded to this. I can't seem to think that they like it in terms of, um, I, I know you've said otherwise from what I've, what I've read, but um, you know, I'm if you just think about it, don't they want people in butts in their seats paying for tuition? We have gotten wonderful support, not opposition at all, from the major every major system we've talked to. So, for example, the first system we talked to is the State University of New York, which is, I think, the largest public university system in the country, you know, maybe better California. I think it has 480,000 students or something like that. And they were extremely supportive right off the bat because, yes, they want students in seats, but they also... And, and, and we're an on-ramp for students to get into their seats. And they're under all sorts of social pressure to make college more affordable. So they've been great advocates of the program that this is one good way to do it. And so they've been very supportive. Texas State has been supportive. The public schools and colleges in Tennessee and Ohio. I don't think there's anybody we've spoken to who hasn't been supportive. Which is awesome to hear. And even more awesome is what this thing called the Internet combined with someone like Steve's generosity, can now allow. Look, if you like Mozart, you don't have to go to the Viennese Opera House, you know, and buy a seat at the Viennese Opera House in Vienna, and you don't have to go to your local orchestra and have them play Mozart for you to hear from your local band. You can listen to the Berlin Philharmonic play Mozart on Sirius Radio or Spotify or just over the air, whatever. There's lots of ways to hear great Mozart for free, right? That's just the way technology has evolved. The same idea can work for college courses where what we've done is we've gone to the very best professors we could find and had them teach a course for us, which is now online and available. Once we've paid to do the course, it's like a movie's been done or a YouTube video's on YouTube. Anyone can watch it now. It doesn't cost us any more to have a million people watch it versus one person watch it. We no longer have to settle for a mediocre or subpar teacher or school. If that's what happens to be in our physical area, we can have the best and we deserve the best. One of the reasons I felt 
kind of compelled to do the ideas, I do think it has a chance to help a lot of people. And I think it could be just a very, very big payoff for any charity that I give. So, you know, I've had good success in my career. I was actually, I was able to put this whole thing together for the single digit millions and it could help many, many, many people. So if it helps a million people save a thousand dollars, of course, that would be a billion of value and it could help way more than a million people. According to my back of the napkin math, if every single potential college freshman did this, the American people could save $100 billion in costs. Now think about that for a moment. For a charitable gift of less than $10 million, you could save upwards of $100 billion 10,000 times Steve's investment. And say if it's only the 1 billion savings number that Steve mentioned, this would still be an insane return, a 100 times return, and a return, not for Steve personally, not for his bank account, for our bank accounts. Again, I'm not in government. I didn't have to wait and convince people to spend $60 billion on community colleges or any other sort of taxpayer subsidy. It's just nice where you can do things as a private citizen and, and not need help from anybody. The quintessential American spirit. Go West, young man. And modern states isn't just some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. It's already helping out real people. We actually are calling up the students as they pass and, and getting the story. So the first student who ever took a modern states course and then passed the CLEP exam so he could get college credit is a 17-year-old homeschooler out in Oregon. So I called him up to congratulate him because he was the first one. And he took a chemistry course from a professor from Columbia for free and now has college credit at 2,900 major universities. I said, do you plan to go to college? He says, no, I want to be an electrician. And so he just was, you know, and, but he's now taken, I think, two more of our courses and passed two more college credit exams. So he's a great story. And the rest of the people are talked to by my team. Talked to another woman who's a working mom, has a one-year-old baby, had to drop out of school to work and take care of her baby. And she stays up late at night and is taking, getting these college credits and courses done, you know, I think at one in the morning, because you can take these courses anytime and at your own convenience and play them back as much as you want. There was another guy we spoke to recently who's 26, was almost done with college, ran out of money, had to drop out, was one credit short of getting his degree, came to modern states, got the course done. You know, we, we paid for the CLEP exam, and now he has his college degree. So there's just some great, you know, it, it's for all types of people. There are 50-year-olds taking it. We just talked to a 13-year-old. There's some prodigy 13-year-old in Arizona who uh, is taking college courses at age 13, and, uh, and so it's for everybody. But why is Steve doing all of this when he doesn't have to? Well, look, I, I believe everybody wants a meaningful life, and it, it goes back to any way you want to think about you know, humans and the purpose of being a, a human. It has nothing to do with being a Wall Street guy trying to or anything like that. It's just, I think everyone wants to, is looking for their own path to have a meaningful life. I try to have a meaningful life in all sorts of ways. I think obviously my family is very meaningful to me. My, my work life, I think, is proper and meaningful. And this was an idea that I thought was eminently achievable that could also be a, a good thing to have done in, 
in my life. And, you know, Dr. Walker's doing meaningful things in his life. The school teacher teaching the kindergartner and really giving that kindergartner personal attention is doing, having a meaningful life. Someone who gets up in the morning and takes care of their kid is having a meaningful life. This is just one thing that, you know, that I could do as, as, as that part of it for me. And great job, as always, on those, Alex. Our On Leadership series, Steve Klinsky, the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital, which has created 26,000 new net jobs, founder of the first charter school in New York State history, and the founder of Freshman Year for Free. You can learn more about this incredible venture at modernstates.org. Steve Klinsky's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick or treat. Trick or treat. Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribe divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. Here's a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skull. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable. 
flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the, the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels. It comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might, they might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain, but what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the seventh century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshiping a tree, said rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, said instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. 
All Hallows' Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows' Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe... In the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. 
A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints' Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But 
The holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, his body was then drawn and quartered and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. Today in England, this is called Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fawkes, and then Guy Fawkes is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason, and so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism, and Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the Civil War left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, tapping on windows, or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern, it comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat, full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches of the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts, and the witches in the 20th century are actually kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions, bad ones. 
In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween, to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. Denison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Denison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Denison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it, it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, so, Anoka civic leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it. So there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. 
you could toilet paper somebody's house. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween work to some extent. But what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. 
The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with his bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just looked this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. 
Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I, and I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specific days set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, you can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these. You get those children who are now growing up, and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. Fifty years ago, when you were too old to trick-or-treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. They fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself, and it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend, uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes, they make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge. You got to dress up. You got to be something that you usually weren't. And you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. 
It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, in a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne, I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network. Dot org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>